0: Listen up, real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and agents, you're in the right place. Unlocking the secrets to real estate investing and entrepreneurship. Welcome to the
1: Titanium Vault, hosted by R.J. Bates III. Here's R.J. Hello,
0: and welcome to the Titanium Vault. I'm your host, R.J. Bates. Today, I'm sitting down with Brian Mara. Brian, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, man, how are
0: you? Good, so why don't you take a second to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do in real estate investing.
1: Sure, so uh, what I do now is I focus on the distressed market. I have for many, many years, coming up on 11 years. uh, Specifically, the majority of my deals and what I've done in the past have been short sales. Uh, More recently, over the last six months, I've been moving into what's called a high equity pre-foreclosure model. Uh, but, but again, still in the distressed, uh, the distressed space.
0: Awesome. And what markets are you currently
1: investing in? Nationwide, um, I've, I've built a nationwide business many years ago. Um, we invest where there are good deals. I have agents and you know team members throughout the country in, in certain you know strategic key locations, um, specifically where there's always been a heavy concentration in short sales, right? Um, but the, the part of my deals are done in the north the greater Philadelphia and New Jersey area, which is where I'm from.
0: Gotcha. So let's go back to the beginning. How did you get your start in real estate investing?
1: You want to go way back, huh?
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you don't have to go all the way back. You can start wherever no, no, the story gets. The sure, no,
1: it's, yeah, it's a good story, man. It's uh, you started off not good and that's how life works, right? So in, in April of 2007, I got my real estate license. That's why I say coming up on 11 years. Um, because I was going through a divorce, and I needed money. And if you remember back then, that was pre-crash, about a year before things really tanked. Um, now, it's funny. Looking back, I, I should have known that things were heading that way. I didn't know because I was brand new, but short sales started popping up everywhere. So as a brand new agent, not having any any business, right? I mean, where do you get your first listing? And you know, if none of your friends and family are looking to list a house, what do you do? So it's funny because I had a inner office email come out through my brokerage with Keller Williams, and they basically said, "Well, an agent said I have a short sale listing outside of Philadelphia. You know, who wants it? Just giving it up." I, by the time it came out the third time, I said, "Well, you know, I'm, I need listings. I might as well give it a shot. I'll take it." Now I always joke around that looking back, I should have known there was a reason over two hundred agents didn't want the, the listing, right? Right. Um, because it's a short sale and they're tough and it takes time. And you have to negotiate with the bank and all that. But, um, happy to say I did close it. It took nine months, um, but as an agent I closed it and I and I. In that nine months, I started picking up more and more and more. And before I knew it, I was kind of the go to guy for short sales as an agent, uh, specifically with listings because I developed a little team of negotiators and people to deal with the banks for me, and in addition to doing it myself. Um, but it's interesting, RJ, because over the period of two years, I started working more and more with investors, um, specifically people doing short sale flips. So they would buy it and flip it the same day and uh, make a lot of money. I'm talking 80, 200, you know, even 40 grand. Well, here I am. I'm a listing agent, and I always tell people, you do the math, right? So, if I'm paid a listing commission of three percent on a two hundred thousand dollar house at six grand, the broker takes about a third. I left. I'm left with four thousand dollars to then split up and pay my team. And this guy or girl will come in and flip it and make forty or eighty or hundred, like literally 10, 20, 30 times what I was making. So I right. became very, very intrigued to say the least on how can I switch hats and become an investor. And about two years in, that's what I did. Is I, I just started investing in short sales instead of being the agent.
0: Awesome. So once you started doing that, how were you taking down those properties? How were you financing them? Were you using private money? Were you using hard money? How were you? How did you just jump into purchasing the properties?
1: So that's that's an interesting point. So if okay, so coming off a of divorce, I'm sure I don't know if any of your listeners, I'm sure some of them have gone through that lovely situation, but I had no money. And not only did I not have any money, I was I was large six figures in debt from the divorce. Um, I had taken out equity lines on my home and things of that nature and, you know, the crash, right? So I was in a really bad place. I didn't have any money and I didn't have any credit. You know, when you lose your house and pretty much lose everything, your credit goes in the toilet. And so no money, no credit. What do you do? Well, back then there was transactional funding, TF, right? It was dough for a day. So I could literally buy a house, get the money for it. They would wire it in as long as I could prove I had the end buyer lined up to flip it to. And I would pay two points on the money, of course. It was kind of expensive, but. I never had a need for money because of transactional funding. And that lasted probably till around 2010 when things changed. And and specifically what I mean is, I don't know if you remember, but you know, bank of America back then, of course, called countrywide, they came out with this infamous bullet point number 10 in the short sale approval letter, which basically stated that you couldn't resell the property for 30 days. Mm-hmm. Now the problem is that, well, transactional funding doesn't work for 30 days. It works for 24 hours. And so Eventually what happened is GMAC and Wells and every other servicer out there started coming up with their own rules. Well, you can't flip it for sixty days and you can't resell for ninety and one twenty. I've even seen one eighty. And it was just like this wild west of not knowing, you know, how long you're gonna have to hold the property for. And if you remember, RJ, all the hard money lenders were gone. They they disappeared with the crash, right? Most of them anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I was at a real crossroads in my investing business, really um, really upset because i over a period of a year or so year and a half i got to 100 deals on my pipeline i was flipping five ten houses a month so it, it, i had this great operation as i mentioned before it spread nationwide with different and people just starting to seek me out and uh and i was at this crossroads about to lose everything so what i did is i partnered up with jeff watson and over a period of about six months we created a, a way on how to wholesale a short sale basically get paid to not do the deal and uh we started doing that in my business, and it started working really, really, really well to the point where people started ser- searching me out, saying, hey, can you teach me? Can you show me? Can you teach me? So eventually, Jeff and I said, well, why don't we create a product? Why don't we just make some videos and give them all our paperwork and really show people how to do this? And so in April of 2011, we launched a product called Flip Free Profits, and it, it went it went gangbusters. It went crazy, um, primarily because all the short sale flippers, if you will, and again, I was one of them. The majority of them went out of business because of, of the, the hold periods, right? Well, if you didn't have to worry about buying it, if you could just wholesale it out and still get paid, I believe that's the reason for the success of the product. And in fact, we went on to do a 2.0 and sold over 3,000 copies of it nationwide. It ended up becoming the number one selling shorts, of course in America. So that's uh, kind of where that led me, you know? Right. So when you
0: were, bear with me because I'm ignorant as far as how this process was working, when you were wholesaling these short sales, were you doing assignments? Were you doing double closes? How were you actually able to wholesale those properties?
1: Sure. So there's no double close and there were no assignments because you're not allowed to assign a short sale because right. the approval letter is, is name specific, right? It's going to grant RJ right. Bates the ability to purchase and nobody else. So what we would do is it was a very – you know it was a 27 hours of training in the course. I'll give you the two-point version, <laughs> okay, <laughs> if that's possible. But basically we would, we would get what's known as an equitable interest in the property from the distressed seller Um, through certain paperwork that, you know, Jeff and his legal expertise created, we would gain an equitable interest in the property. So then what we would do is we would then sell the equitable interest to the end buyer. So once we knew it was a property, we couldn't buy, didn't make sense with the whole period, this, that, the other, we would be willing to step aside and put the end buyer who we were going to flip to in our place, they would basically pay us to go away. So they weren't paying us an assignment fee. What they were paying us was called a release and termination of contract or equitable interest. Now, the way that fee would be structured is it would be put on the HUD because legally it had to be. Uh, Specifically, we put on line 104. It was POC, right, paid outside of closing. And we were building it in as additional buyer's basis in the property. So, for example, just to give you some round numbers, I had an approval at 150. House is worth 200, 180, whatever. Um, We would move it quick. We would say, look, you can have it for 165, but here's how that's going to work. You're going to step in our place and pay the 150. The bank has paid off. They're happy. You're going to pay us 15 to go away to release our equitable interest. So you're still paying the 165, but it's going to be cut up a little differently. Uh, we would then contact the bank once, once we had all parties in agreement, let them know we are no longer purchasing this property. We're electing to step aside, disclosing to them, very important part that we were getting paid to release our interest. Uh, put it on the HUD, which they would have to sign of course, and, uh, consummate the deal and the way that would happen rj is that we would have to re request a new approval letter issued and now the end buyer's name um so you know back in the day we always referred to the flips as a to b mm-hmm. which a being the, the distressed seller b being the investor buyer and then b to c where you flip it and make your money i always told people in the simple terms to look at it like this we b disappeared and we were selling a to c and getting paid to disappear right
0: so that's that's similar to to what my company does um you know, we we actually do pass through double closes, so it's it's kind of similar to that, but okay. it's almost like you you built a hybrid between an assignment and a double close. Yes, exactly. I, I mean, it's like yeah. you, know, you were basically getting paid an assignment, but you just yep. called it something else
1: and you found a loophole
0: on the right, paperwork.
1: Right. Right. I mean, and, dude, it never was done before, so like, it, it's not this revolutionary concept. No one just ever thought to do it. And it's these weird things in life. When you're the first to bring something to market, that actually works and it's legal. That's why it did so well and, and we, why we went on to do what we did. And, and you know, uh, then I, I started a coaching program, right? I never thought I'd be coaching people, but they're like, hey, dude, I'll pay you. I'll give you 10 grand to teach me and, and hold my hand. I'm like, okay, I'll give you 20. I'll give you 50. I'm like, next thing you know, I'm running a, a nationwide coaching and mentoring program, right? And uh, doing the whole, quote, you know, mini guru thing, right? So it's kind of really weird, like, I'm just a kid from Trenton, New Jersey, and next thing you know, I've I've got this product that I'm coaching people, and we've I, my company we've done over a thousand deals, man. So it's uh it's it's been a hell of a ride, you know. When
0: when you're coaching about this topic, do you ever feel because I feel this way sometimes when I talk about wholesaling or rehabbing a property, where it's almost like it, it's so simple to me, it's it's shocking that someone would be willing to pay me that much for that information, because it's like you said, you, you didn't do anything revolutionary,
1: but really you kind of were, but it it didn't feel that way. Right. It it didn't for me because, and I think that's, and I think that you may be suffering from the same disease and that you become so good at what you do that you forget how complex it really is for a brand new person. Right. And so if someone is just learning what an AOS means, an agreement of sale. And, and, and you know, they, they literally are so brand new that things that we take for granted are, are very complex to them. And so for me, specifically in short sales, because there's so many moving parts and how do you differentiate between a first and a second? There's different negotiating strategies. What about a jumbo, an FHA, a VA? You know, there's so many different moving parts in a short sale and all the different loan types and each one are a different level of negotiation and pricing strategy. So it actually is a very complex model, you know, to the point where I I got I was coaching at one at one point thirty six people at one point. Now here's the thing, unlike these big shot gurus, I wasn't having them call some call center, right? I always joke around because people will drain their, their retirement accounts and what do they get, dude? They're getting getting you know a twenty four year old kid on a headset in Utah reading off a script and that's their coach. We know that. Right. And, and and it's criminal, but because I actually work with people like when we had our structured call every week and they had my cell phone If things went wrong, they could always call me. That's why all the people I worked with were always successful, the high majority of them anyway, because just walking them through and, it, and you know, it's not even know much. You, you say, Well, they bought your course. Why would they need to work with you? Because to work through a deal and all the questions that come up and, and really it was more like a, like a consultative type basis, of course, with a structured call each week. But um, I really went out of my way to provide value for people, and in fact, the only reason I stopped coaching is because number one, it was taking away from my real estate investing business. I wasn't able to do as many deals being a coach, right, or guru, whatever you want to call it. Right. And secondly, secondly, man, I, I was scaling up to the point where I knew the only other way for me to continue to go would be to get one of those call centers and me step out of the picture. And I, in good, consci- I, in good conscience, I couldn't do that. I, could, right. I just couldn't do that. If, if they, if I wasn't going if I'm gonna take your money. You're going to be successful, or I'm at least damn well going to try, and you're going to work directly with me. And right. so I, I kind of was at a crossroads, and that's why I eventually shut it all down. Stop stopped selling the product, shut down the coaching, and, you know, went a different way.
0: Yeah, going back to something you said at the beginning of that statement, you know, talking about being an expert at something. I remember mm-hmm. the first time someone tried to teach me to do a subject to the existing mortgage. Mm-hmm. I remember I was blown away. I mean for like half the day <laughs> right. I was like, No, that's not what? real. You can't Would anybody do really that. do that? <laughs> right. Right, right. I was like, No, this just doesn't make sense. Like what you're telling me, this this seems like a scam. There's right, no right. way. And then it's like I started looking it up and I started asking other investors and it's like they're like, Oh yeah, dude, I do that all the time. That's how I've built my rental portfolio. And I'm going, Wow, really? And now after several years of doing that, I'll have people reach out to me and they're like, Hey, RJ, I've got this deal. Can you help me? And I'm like, yeah, I, th- I think we should do a subject too. And they're like, what is that?
1: Right. And it, exactly. it's the same
0: thing. It's like just over time, it just becomes like second nature. Like that's what you're supposed to do. And, and you're right. It, it is kind of like you get numb to the fact that there was a point in time where when I was told that literally for like 24 hours, I did not believe it. I was like, mm-hmm. this is a lie. You are trying to get me in trouble. There's no way in the world I can do that, and so I I get it. So how long did that process – or how long did you have to stick with doing that with the short sales? Do you still have to do it that way, or have you – has the model like shifted and changed over
1: time? No. it's So here's the thing. It it still works. It works almost 100% of the time. The only time it doesn't work is sometimes a lender will say, well – Thank you for disclosing that you're getting paid to step aside. But in our particular, our investor doesn't want you making any money. So we thank you for disclosing that, but we're not going to allow you to get paid. So you're if you want to step aside and give us that extra money, we'll do we'll still let the buyer, you know, get the house, but you're not getting anything. That's happened to me. I can count it on one hand. Literally four times. Four times in, you know, what? Nine years, eight, nine years. So it still works like almost all the time, right? And the only danger, you know, you have of running into is you're going to work the whole deal and you may get one of those little private lenders, you know, cause generally your big, your big box, your Fannie Freddie, they they just want, listen, they've gone through their valuation. They know what they need the net. They don't want to foreclose. They're like, okay, we don't care if you get it. Mickey Mouse gets it. If you're getting a little money to go away, they don't care. They just, they don't care. They just want to consummate the deal, you know? Right. So it still, pretty,
0: works. yeah, it's pretty similar to what we do when, you know, when we wholesale a property, be it whatever kind of property it is, we always choose to double close rather than do an assignment. And the reason why is because when we got started, I was always told, well, do an assignment because it's cheaper and you're you're not losing some of your profit on the fees. But if you're going to make a lot of money and you don't want your buyer to know how much money you're making, then do a double close. And I was like, well, yeah. that's kind of dumb because you're essentially letting your buyer know when you double close, like, hey, <laughs> I'm making <laughs> a lot of money on this deal. <laughs> and so I was like, we're just going to double close everything. Right. And the only time I don't want to do a double close is if the buyer specifically asked me, hey, I'm going to sell this. My buyer's probably going to be FHA and I'm going to need to close it in less than 90 days. So can you please assign it? I don't care what right. you're making. That's now, the only time I will do that. But we disclose it as well, and I have never had the seller mess up the deal because of the disclosure. Where we're saying, you know, here's our double escrow agreement. And right. you're right. I mean, it, it, you just have to do things the right way. And those disclosures, like you said, thousands of deals, less than a handful of times has it ever come back to bite you in the ass. So
1: well, interestingly enough, you, you brought up a couple of really good points. First of all, you mentioned FHA. Now, when we're asking someone to step aside, or excuse me, we're stepping aside for someone and asking them to pass to do so, it requires they have cash, right? right. So if they if they don't have that fifteen or twenty or God, we I've I had coaching students make six figures on releases, um, with, in all fairness, the average being around eight to ten thousand dollars. So it's not this you know huge deal. But to right. get eight to ten grand to step aside is not a bad it's not a bad payday, right? For for a house you never had to buy. That's what I was Absolutely. But here's the thing, FHA. There they're putting down three and a half percent and then they get a gift letter from their dad and they don't have the money so what do you do we generally try to steer away from the fha buyers another thing that we couldn't do and this is the other reason it wouldn't work is with the fha you couldn't put another lien. so like let's say someone owes us 15 grand Well, we'll do interest only payments we'll write up a note we'll wrap a little mortgage and we'll we'll hold that you know we'll hold that back for them so they can make payments to pay the release and to them the numbers is see RJ, as long as the numbers make sense, right? They're like, listen, we're getting a hundred and eighty or hundred and ninety thousand dollars house for one sixty-five. Yes, it's being cut up to one fifty and fifteen in my example from earlier. They know they're getting a deal. So what we found they'll do, even the FHA buyers, they'll, they'll talk to grandma, they'll they'll sell the, uh, something. You know what I mean? They'll come up right. with the money, and either we just say, okay, fine, you know, that you came up with eight of the fifteen, whatever, we'll take it and move on, or we would write up a note, um, which is what got me into the note business, by the way. And, uh, you know, and then we started, you know, trading paper on the back end, which is pretty cool.
0: Right. I remember when, you know, I was in my mid twenties, I was going to buy my first house and, and it was during that period of time where everything had crashed and, you know, the world was on fire and and we were starting to recover, or at least Mm -hmm. we thought we were going to start recovering. Nobody really knew. And, right. and I had an opportunity to buy a house that was worth 90000 and he was selling it to me for 72000 mm-hmm. And And I would do I, – I literally did everything I could. I had no money to put down on the house. But I – like you said, like I, I was in line of, ready to sell <laughs> my left kidney to go get right, this house because right. it was like that's $18,000. And at that point in time, it was like $18,000 in equity. Like, Oh, yeah. I have, I have no right to have that, you know, and and right. so yes, the those buyers will do whatever it takes to acquire that equity or that opportunity that's in front of them. Yeah. So you talk about your note business. Why don't you go into that? How what does that look like now, and how did you get started in the note buying business?
1: Well, just as I just mentioned, I, I so I never really got into what people traditionally considered notes, like buying your non performing notes and either getting the re perform or you know you know selling them off all, all that nature. But what I did is through the by default, right, I kind of got into the world of seller financing because when people didn't have the money for the release, I was creating the notes. So they weren't ones that I was trading or selling off or doing partial or any other different strategies that are out there. I was simply having these short term, you know, notes in my own portfolio, which a lot of times they would pay off earlier. Right. So a lot of times they would come into some money or whatever to get a tax return and just get rid of it sooner, which was great. Um it's, it's interesting. I just ran a workshop at my office last Saturday, and the whole topic all day was on seller financing, right? How to be the bank. And I'm like, mm-hmm. man, I've been doing that for about eight years. It's pretty cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, right. um, you know, there, you could be brokering notes. I mean, obviously, there's a the whole different industry in and of itself within the uh, the real estate world. But I always found it very interesting, right? And uh, and for me, that's how, how we applied it internally. Um, never really scaled it up. Never really wanted to be, a you know, a, a note guy, so to speak, you know, there's many different people out there that teach that exclusively. It was just one of an, another arrow in our quiver, you know?
0: Right. It's amazing how that works, right? Like you got into real estate and you were, you were, I say this with all due respect, but you were just an agent. And then absolutely, yeah. you, you learned and then you became an investor and then you, you took your knowledge from being an agent in the short sales and became an investor in short sales. And then from that, now you became the bank you know, I mean, it's crazy, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's just a stair step. And it's like, you know, I know you're big on multiple streams of income yeah. and you almost did that where you created multiple ways to create income as just within real estate uh, in almost on one transaction. When you're buying those short sale properties, are you also taking a commission as the agent?
1: Okay. Two things. Number one, absolutely not. So the current laws on the books, and as they always have been, is that there'd be some form of collusion, right? You absolutely do not want to be the listing agent and or buyer's agent on a transaction where you're the investor. Um, having a partner like Jeff Watson was was critical for me to stay you know, legal in doing all this because you got to remember there was a lot of people doing short sales wrong and people getting in trouble and even some people that went to jail, right, for fraud. Right. Um, and, and, and what is fraud? It's simply... Not telling people what's going on. You're hiding a material fact, right? So as long as, and I learned that in real estate school, it's, what do they say? It's disclose, disclose, disclose. So as long as you're disclosing that you're an agent, as I always did, and as long as I was never a principal to the transaction, as far as being the listing agent or the buyer's agent, that's never going to be a problem. Um, and that's what we always taught with the course and the coaching and everything else for people to stay out of trouble. Now, swinging back to what you said, as far as the exit strategies, you're absolutely right. What I've always loved about short sales is that it is one of the greatest acquisition strategies because once you're able to control a property at below market value, I always told people there's four ways you get paid now, right? You could wholesale it out, which we discussed. You could actually purchase the property and renovate it, you know, do a fix and flip and resell it. You could purchase it, renovate it, and then put a tenant in there. Now you're a landlord, you got buy and hold, or you could do, you know, owner seller financing, hold the note and be the bank. And that's exactly what we've done. We've, we've, utilize all four extra strategies all these years to build a portfolio.
0: Right, and let me go back and touch base on something. If you're going to be a real estate investor for a long period of time, and you have questions about whether or not you're doing something that's ethical or not, becoming a realtor is a great way to fully understand it. You don't have to actually become the prototypical realtor you know, where you're going to have retail listings and buyers and all of that, but really just understanding the laws and what you're, how you're supposed to actually handle certain transactions. Like you said, disclose, disclose, disclose. I mean, that's, right. it's kind of beaten in your head as a realtor. Once you go through real estate school, right. um, you know, I'm personally not licensed, but my partner is, and okay. so she has all of the knowledge. Uh, in regards to that. And so it allows us to know whether or not we're doing something correctly or not. And the other thing is, is every state has their own laws, right? So absolutely, you, you do it nationwide. How do you, how have you built teams in all of these different areas? Because I think team building is, is not a, a trait to be, you know, undermined. Like that is impressive that
1: you've been able to do that. So talk about how you've been able to build your teams. So it all comes full circle, um, you know, as, as things normally do. Um, being an agent and the reason – now, keep in mind, I know we discussed it earlier. I haven't listed a house in probably seven, eight years, right? I, that, why do you keep your license? Well, it, I get MLS access, and I, and I also get deals from within the brokerage where I hang my license, even though it's in referral status. But I still keep it for that very reason. And in fact, RJ, one of the biggest questions I would always get from new students is, well, do I need my license? Well, the answer is no. You don't need it but it sure as hell would help you if you can go and get it. Right. Right. So I always gave that advice and counsel as far as getting a license. Now to answer your question, that's exactly how I would build teams nationwide. So my particular brokerage is Keller Williams, and I chose a larger one with a nationwide presence for that very reason. And so let's say, so let's back up a second where I would get my deals and where i still get them is through marketing. So I'm very public when it comes to Facebook, social media, LinkedIn, I grew a, you know, custom homegrown 50,000-person email list of nationwide investors and realtors by doing video blogs and all the different things I've done. So by putting out a weekly newsletter, I'm still to this day getting people calling me from Houston or from Seattle or you name it, all around the country. Hey, bro, I got a deal. Would you be interested in doing it? Now, when I got started, or even now, if it's an area where I don't have a team, I simply will go on the intranet for Keller Williams, find the closest local office, call the team leader, the broker, and say, who are your top three agents that, that know all about short sales, the distressed experts? I'll get on the phone. I'll talk with them. I'll pick one and say, basically, hey, I got a listing for you. Um, it's a deal we can work together. I'll do all, all the work with the bank. You know, you'll know, you never talk to the bank. I'll never touch your commission. Let's, let's roll and do a deal together. Um, so that's always been my strategy, and it's always worked out really, really well.
0: That's pretty impressive that you've been able to leverage working with a larger larger brokerage like that and, and been able to grow and expand your business across those markets. When you're taking these down in, you know, say it's just a remote market that you don't have a team set up. So, for example, if I found you a deal in Dallas, mm-hmm. you're going to contact the Keller Williams broker office here in Dallas, Texas. Exactly. Is your plan to just wholesale that?
1: Um, so interestingly enough, the majority of ones that were out of the area were wholesaled because I don't have a contracting crew on the ground. I don't have, you know, I, I literally, most of the deals I've done, RJ, I've never seen the house and I've never right. met the seller or talked to the seller. And with my negotiators, I don't even talk to the bank. So people always laugh like, well, what, what the hell do you do? Well, I, I I'm a consultant. I'm an armchair quarterback. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> so but you know I'm a deal maker I'm, I, I put de- I put things together but at the end of the day the majority of them were wholesaled we have done um, remote fix and flips and fortunately they've worked out but I could probably count them on two hands like I we did a couple in Vegas and we, you know what I mean so right. a little more challenging when you're you're physically not there but again that's where you rely in my case the only times I I did fix and flips remotely Um, as a strategy, as an extra strategy would be when I was really comfortable with the listing agent and I knew that they knew that area, like the back of the hand, they were a true local area expert. And secondly, when there was a local coaching student that was working with me, that actually that was their stomping ground. They knew the area. So between the agent and the investor, generally a coaching student of mine, um, that's when I would get in JV on a deal and and do a remote fixing flip.
0: How did you know that you were going to be able to wholesale that property? How did you know you would have a buyer in a market that you've never wholesaled a property in before?
1: Easy, because I'm confident in my ability to negotiate a price that I know somebody will buy it, right? And what do they say? What well, sells a house. It's, it's your location. It's your condition and your price, with price clearly being the ultimate indicator. And I knew that with the strategies of negotiating and how we can get the value down and get these discounts, that it may not make sense for a fix and flip, but I sure as hell could find someone to, wholesale it to and pick up a quick five ten grand and it and it almost never failed.
0: That's pretty impressive. I mean I've done a lot of virtual wholesaling and and a lot of times what has kind of chosen our markets to go to is knowing that we have buyers. And and it sounds to me like you've always gone to wherever the deal was. Yeah. So we've kind of had different strategies. You've just followed the deal. I followed the buyers um so that's it's kind of impressive. That's well, it's a, the that's opposite. A different way of thinking.
1: It's a complete polar opposite because I knew now keep one thing in mind, all short sales, one of the legal requirements is that it has to be listed on the MLS. So granted, um, it would go pended or under contract right away with my offer, but at some point when we knew that we would have to release our interest, we simply flipped that listing active. And so I would utilize the MLS knowing that I could put the right price to negotiate a price plus a little bump up for me where finding a buyer was never a problem to this day RJ I don't have a buyers list I never had one never needed one that's
0: crazy right that's crazy you know I say this sometimes but uh this is an interview unlike any other I mean <laughs> I am I'm, I'm learning a lot over here I I hope people listen to this cuz there's a lot of valuable <laughs> information It's fun available. man you know, it's I cool. mean that's that's crazy I mean I I you know you, you get to a certain point where you're kind of like you know, I, as far as this podcast goes, sometimes I worry. Like, you know, I'm just going to give the same content over and over hey. and over again. This one, uh, I'm learning a lot. I'm learning uh, ways <laughs> to do to do short sales and different deals. There buddy. you go, man. Uh, I feel like I'm going to have to like PayPal you some money afterwards yeah, for right. the education. Yeah.
1: Those days so, are over, coach. Uh, uh, More consider it for your, right?
0: free. <laughs> so you always talk about on Facebook. You do. You have a great, you know, presence on there. You're constantly giving out content. Yeah. You talk about multiple streams of income. Why do you think that's important? And kind of what are some of the different ways that you've been able to create multiple streams of income for you?
1: Oh, uh, dude, I, I I counted it up. I literally have seven different ways I get paid now. You know, um, I started, um, the oldest one, an IT staffing firm, basically a headhunting company in the late 90s. Um, technically incorporated went into real business in 01. So you're talking in 17 years. I still have an ownership interest in that business. I don't work it. I don't maintain it, but I have an ownership interest which pays me residually. So, you know, people don't know that about me. But I've always had numerous streams of income. Right? I'm still working in a consultative basis, although I'm not quote coaching anymore. With prior students who just want to be able to rely on me when they have trouble, and they'll say, "Listen, I'll give you 10% of my deal, but I'm going to call you and ask you questions. And if we get you know hung up with the bank, and sure, you know, there's another stream of income, right?" I get mm-hmm. referrals by being a licensed agent. I'm a referral agent. So when my brother wants to buy a house, right, which he does, you know, he's an investor and put me down as the buyer's agent. Well, there's another five, ten, fifteen grand, right? So I'm a mm-hmm. big believer in that. Um, locally now, I'm marketing for the online education company Renatis. So they have the full university of classes. Well, when someone enrolls in the classes, they pay me. It's another stream of income, dude. So it's like, and I'm, and I'm doing my investment deals. And then lastly, I'm in the health and fitness industry now with the human growth hormone. I was talking to you about that. I'm big mm-hmm. into, you know, being a cancer survivor. Um, and I don't know if I ever told you that, but when I was 18, I was diagnosed with stage four terminal cancer. And so mm-hmm. I went through a lot, you know, and, you know, the whole Sunday stories, the Lord ended up healing me. It was a miraculous healing because the chemo and all the surgeries didn't work, but I allowed myself through work and all those years to get really out of shape and I was obese at one point. And, I ended up losing over 80 pounds and changed my life around. And I've always had a, a real interest and passion for, for health and wellness and fitness. So with this human growth hormone that came out and, you know, me having the opportunity to market that and help people change their lives, that's, that's my newest income stream. So, yeah, dude, I'm a unique person. I just, I really believe in having all different streams because if one drives up, you got six more, right? And, and I think it's right. sad and scary, frankly, that most people have one. They have their job and that's all they have. Or, or, or right. maybe they have their business. And if something turns, they're, they're the people that are going to be calling me to do a short sale. Right. And, I don't, and I don't say that with any disrespect, but that that's how life changes, right?
0: So, you know, with you surviving cancer and, you know, you talk about it being a miraculous healing. Yeah. You know, I'm assuming that has a lot to do with your drive and your purpose, but what? Uh, Altogether, what is your why and, and your driving force behind these businesses that you're creating and these systems and helping people? What's your why?
1: You know, and I think that is I, I reflect on that a lot. And having almost lost my life and thinking as an 18-year-old man that it was over um, when I lost all the hair and I was laying in Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia and looking out the window thinking, "Is this it? You know, is this is this is this where I check out?" When I when I was healed and I I did get better and get get on with my life, I was. I never knew what I wanted to do, and that's the funny thing. I had to drop out of college to get well. I never went back. I just started working, and so I've had so many different jobs. I, I joke around, but it's the truth. I've had 28 jobs in my life, and, and I was fired from every one of them because I just – I guess that was an indicator. I had to be an entrepreneur. I can't take orders real well, you know. but I just didn't know what it was going to be, uh, whether it was the mortgage industry back in the day or the staffing company, right? And then, and then through a, another calamity, right, a life change, a divorce, I was put into real estate. You know, 11 years ago, and that was the best decision I've ever made. So my passion, my drive, why I do what I do is because I believe that we're here on this planet to do more than just make money. We're here to impact lives. I think that the more people's lives I can help, you know, I was always very excited about helping people to short sale because they wouldn't have a foreclosure on their record. Don't throw throw in the towel. Don't let the bank do that to you. Don't, Don't just get that foreclosure, which will be on there for a decade. You know, 10 years is a long time. Let's at least try the short sale so you can move on with your life. And I felt a real sense of gratitude from that. I really felt good helping people in that way. And now working with people, I always loved coaching. And what I'm doing now up in the Northeast with these local communities and you know, being able to share the word about how people can get in better health with the, you know, the human growth hormone, the over-the-counter one. Just everything I do is driven by helping people in and, and some weird way, RJ, that always relates back to money, meaning the more people I help, the more money I make, and it takes care of itself.
0: It's amazing how that works out. No, you know, um, I, th- I think a lot of p- times people fall into this trap where they kind of feel sorry for themselves a little bit. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes I see it where they, they stop trying to help other people. And, yeah. and you're right, man. Um, I, I've had it multiple times in my business where there have been times where we weren't in a position that we should have <clears throat> excuse me, we shouldn't have helped. In certain ways that we did, but every time we did that, it's like, you know, the, the forces out there, be it God, karma, whatever you want to believe in, um, it came back to us tenfold and it's like, that's what boosted our business. And there's times where we went months without helping anybody. And suddenly I realized we, we weren't as happy. We weren't succeeding. Maybe money was still coming in, but maybe it was going out faster than it was coming in. And and I've just seen that time and time again. Absolutely. Um, Where do you want to be in the next five years?
1: I want to continue to impact lives. I've really gotten excited about opening up these local communities. I started an office outside of Philadelphia. I call it a school, right? So people can plug in online. They get their classes. They take the education, which is awesome because I don't have to be the one teaching them, right? Um, But then they come to the college, what I call the schooling that I created, and we do deals together. And we provide all the resources they need in the form of contractors and money for their deals and then that just allows the community to thrive and grow. And, you know, we started that, I opened up my office in November of last year. So a year and well, the year before, so about 14, 15 months ago. And we've already had over half a dozen people retire, you know, leave their full-time jobs to become full-time investors. And that alone, man, that, to continue to do that, and if I look five years in the future and, and, and I, I see in my mind hundreds of people I'm going to set free, meaning moms and dads being able to, you know, be full-time moms and dads and spend time with their kids and not miss the games and I I believe that's my best way to impact society and and really make a mark and do something. So I'm so passionate about that that after we opened up our first office, uh, we opened up another one in downtown Philadelphia, uh, two in New Jersey north. We're opening up um, this coming Monday, the 12th. We are launching in Cherry Hill, South Jersey, and another one out in Pennsylvania in two months. So that will be six offices in uh, schools, if you will, inside of a year and a half. So I'm on a really fast growth path with the real estate, and uh, I see myself doing that on a larger scale. Nationwide in the next five
0: years. I love it, man. That's, uh, that's amazing. You keep doing what you're doing. Thanks, uh, man. And to, to impact people's lives and, like you said, to to get them to financial freedom. Yep. Um, there's, there's no better feeling than that. So uh, congratulations on, on getting that off the ground Thank and uh, the quick success. Um, for listeners out there, if they want to contact you and reach you, what's the best way they can contact you?
1: So everything is through my, my website, which is the same email. So I came up with a branding, um, when I didn't want to be known in, in, in just for doing short sales anymore. It's so funny how life works. I, I came up with a brand and it's called investor entourage, right? So if, if someone goes to my website, it's investorentourage.com. Similarly, my email is uh, Brian with an I, B R I A N at investorentourage.com. They can go to my site, which is my blog, and read all about me and what we're doing these days and you know how they could potentially get involved. Um, and then, of course, my email is – that's my email. I'll, I, I always respond. I always tell people I'm a little slow to respond on email because I get like 200 a day, but I will get back to you, <laughs> okay? I promise. Right. It's not some robot. I personally will get back to you. It just may take me a little while. But, uh yeah, that, that would be the best way for them to reach me, RJ.
0: Awesome, man. Hey, thank you so much for sitting down with us. I know you're extremely busy, but I appreciate you taking the time to do this interview. There were some great content in this. And like I said, if nobody else listens to it, I learned it. <laughs> so you impacted me today. So thank you so much well, for sitting down with us. Thank you
1: for having me. And in all sincerity, getting back to what we closed this call with is if one person listens to this and they're driving in the car, they're at the gym. And, you know, obviously your podcast has been extremely successful. So congratulations on that. Um, there, this could potentially be that one call, that one recording that changes somebody's life and pushes them over the edge say, so, you know what? I am going to do something different. I am going to start in real estate, or I'm going to take it to the next level. And, and knowing that just having a casual conversation with you, with the, with the ability of social media and technology to push it out to so many thousands of people, if I impacted one life by taking time to do this, it was totally worth it, dude, and I'll do it anytime.
0: Damn straight, man. It's a great time to be alive, and it's a great time to impact people's lives. Yes, it is. We can reach more people's lives than than any other point in time in the history. So I love it. Thank you for sitting down with us, and we'll talk to you soon.
1: Sounds good, brother. Have a good
0: day.